When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to the Mutual Audio Network. Please, don't turn that dial. The following audio drama is rated G, which means it's perfectly safe for folks and families of all ages. Yes, even Grandma. Enjoy. Hail and well met. I'm guessing you're wanting shelter from the storm, right? Well, it is a cold night out there. Why don't you pull up a chair by the fire? I have just the thing to pass the time. A story. I call it The Scrying Eye. This is part two. Welcome to the Lavender Tavern, my friend. And then he saw her, a woman almost directly in front of him, reaching down with one swift motion, taking a bow and an arrow from a sack, notching the arrow and drawing the bow back and aiming at Kedrin, and... And Bernard raced forward without thinking and pushed the woman as hard as he could, as hard as he had thrown the rock in the forest, and she struck the ground but the arrow still flew through the council chamber and struck a man, and the man fell. Kedrin, Bernard thought, my heart. There was a silence as the members drew back from the slain man, and Bernard saw that it was not Kedrin after all. He felt guilty for a moment that he was rejoicing that another man had been killed, but all thoughts stopped a moment later. Kedrin Cradling the man, withdrew the arrow from him and held it up. It was split in two. Men and women crowded around Bernard, thanking him, holding down the woman who had fired the arrow, talking and shaking their heads. He felt surrounded by a great stillness. The dead man, Farah, was the leader of the conservative faction, Bernard knew. It had only been his own intervention which had diverted time's arrow. For the split arrow was the same one as the second testament in Radolf's pouch. They want me to take over the conservative faction now that Farah is dead, Kedrin mused later that night at their home. It was as if he had to keep talking, keep moving to prove to himself that he was yet alive. But nobody can replace him. We're going to lose the vote against the eye. Bernard wanted to laugh. The vote... Of course they would lose the vote. The scrying eye must be built. His life had been cast in iron from the moment Radolf had come back to him all those years ago. A failed relationship, Radolf had said. If time itself could not be changed, how could he ever hope to keep Ketrin? 
Nobody blamed Bernard for Farah's death, and he was encouraged to take some time to himself. Contemplating Radolf and his past made Bernard think of Blayed, his old instructor. He decided to visit the painting academy and talk to her. A warm spring wind blew through the windows of the painting academy, and Blayed was marching about like a soldier, as always. She was much older and gray, but still as wise and wily as ever. She eyed him with a vinegar expression. My old student, what prompts you to visit your older tutor? He had brought his newer paintings with him, the best ones. They were rolled up and tied with a leather strap, and he took them out and asked her to look at them. You're a respected illustrator, Blayad said acidly. Do you still need my approval? She sighed and placed the paintings on the table. He watched as she flipped through them, saying nothing. At last, she rolled them up again, tied them off, and gave them back to him. It is good that you are not following the latest fashions, she said. It must be Kedron's influence. He smiled, pained. You capture the events of history well, she added. But? Bernard asked. There is no but. You capture the events well. But, Bernard said, my heart is not in it? Blayad sighed. Did you bring a lunch, Master Bernard? He could not recall her ever calling him Master. As a matter of fact, I did, Bernard said, and drew out from his satchel a small box. He opened it. A riotous combination of colors and textures and scents, spirals of meat and twists of bread, carrot curls and radish roses. With the sauces and colors, it suddenly occurred to Bernard that it resembled nothing so much as an artist's easel. Blayad looked at the box and nodded. You are a competent painter, she said, but I do wonder where your heart is. Thinking of Kedron, Bernard wondered the same thing. What do you think of the scrying eye? he asked her. The news had finally been announced around town, and discussions were vigorous and intense on both sides. Will it take away my employ? Will they truly be able to see everything through it? Blayad shrugged and drew her cloak closer, and he saw afresh how she had aged. Your parents' generation needed painters and illustrators, she said. Your generation needs painters and illustrators. The day that a giant eye tells us that we no longer need painters or illustrators, that is the day I shall retire. He left her standing in the courtyard, a soldier still defending her keep. Kedron, with other council representatives, was to visit other nearby towns and request their investment in the scrying eye. Their town would provide intelligence and information to the other towns in exchange for the vast sums of gold that would be needed to build it. It all sounded rather circular to Bernard. I haven't been to see my family in some time, Bernard mentioned to Kedron. Would you mind if I stayed in town while you travel? Of course, Kedron said, somewhat distant. Bernard suspected that Kedron felt strange about him having saved his life, but they had never discussed it. Kedron's mind was now on the eye and the council and the magistrate's position. Although they shared meals in a bed, there was a distance that Bernard did not like. His parents were also older. Ty was a delightful young woman who had not married and did not plan to. His mother drew him aside that night and spoke to him in hushed tones. "'Your father has contracted the forgetting illness,' she said. 
Bernard shook his head. I have been with you and him all day, and I see nothing wrong. He is as he has always been. It takes time for one to see it, she said, shaking her head. I tell you that something is wrong. After dinner, he left his parents to their usual bickering and wandered through the rooms of the small house, stopping at his father's easel. It had not been used in months. The paints were dry and cracked. An artist is always working, Bernard remembered his father telling him, and a chill prickled his spine. Am I misinterpreting the signs, he wondered, or does my father truly have the illness? But he soon forgot about his father, for Kedron, the council, and the entire city became caught up in the planning, building, and creation of the scrying eye. The town had become a city, and the city now had its project. Everyone in the city was involved, from the builders who constructed the giant building that would house the eye, to the drafters and designers, to the mages of arcane arts who gave the eye its power, and even the graduates of the cooking academy who supplied the builders and drafters and designers and mages with food and drink. Bernard's task was to document the progress of the eye. He sketched as the builders laid down the foundations, the mages scratched symbols and runes in the eye's enormous circle of glass, the city alchemist poured the dyes that swirled and ran across the surface of the eye, and finally, a hundred men and women used ropes and pulleys to lift the eye into place. The eye did nothing, and would do nothing, until it was told what to do. One of the mages explained it to Bernard thusly. If I ask you to cook me a pie, and you've never done so before, you would not be able to cook one. But if I gave you a list of steps, very clear and very simple, then you would be able to follow those steps, one at a time in order, and bake a pie. The eye is similar. It is powerful and can do much, but we must tell it exactly what to do. The mages and alchemists could not tell the eye what to do. There were few in the entire world that had the skill of, as Bernard thought of it, recipe writing. A young man from several towns over was the only person nearby known for his skill at writing such instructions, and the city council spared no expense at sending a messenger with the promise of a great deal of gold. "'Some say they're going to offer that man more gold than it took to build the eye,' Kedron said darkly one night, tamping the contents of his pipe. He'd taken to smoking an aromatic mixture at night, which Bernard thought made him look even older. But it is only a rumor. I would have thought that the council would have arranged for an artisan before the eye was built, Bernard said as he cleared the dinner dishes in the kitchen. The smell of pipe tobacco, of Kedron, wafted into the kitchen. Such is the power of haste, Kedron replied. Every task is out of step. The man with a talent for writing recipes came to the city at last, and there was a large crowd assembled to meet him. Bernard had been given the assignment to illustrate the meeting, and he sketched furiously as the handsome cab pulled up and discharged his passenger. There were rules to sketching an open public event. First, to roughly draw the outlines of the people Bernard already knew. Then, he would focus on the most important person he did not know, this man. But as the door to the handsome cab opened and the man stepped out of it, 
the charcoal stick fell from Bernard's hand. The man was tall and of stocky build. Bernard did not need to hear the mayor speak to know his name. It was Radolf. Radolf, after all of these years! He was no longer indistinct. Bernard's artist's eye imprinted his blonde hair, hazel eyes, sly smile, and thick beard. After a very long moment, he bent down, picked up the stick, and continued to sketch. There was a long ceremony, with much clapping and huzzas, and when people began to disperse, the mayor, a rotund, middle-aged man with a red face and long sideburns, brought Radolf to Bernard. "'This is Radolf!' the mayor said. "'It isn't necessary,' Bernard thought, looking at Radolf. "'Of course we know each other. We have known each other for years. He has directed my life as surely as an archer directs an arrow.' But Bernard saw no hint of recognition in Radolf's eyes, and he realized that, to Radolf, this was the first time they had met. "'I'm charmed,' Radolf said, and again showed that sly grin. "'You will work together,' the mayor announced, as if there was a scribe nearby to take down his pronouncement. "'While Radolf prepares the eye, you will document his work for our town history. And once the eye is ready, the city will be transformed!' Transformed, Bernard thought for the first time. Transformed into what? There was little time to think about such things over the next several months. Radolf plunged himself into the work of writing the instructions for the eye, and Bernard drew Radolf, and the mages and alchemists who helped him, and even the builders who cursed at him. Radolf walked back and forth, singing, chanting sometimes, muttering to himself, and writing strange symbols in chalk on a large slate in the building that housed the eye. "'What do you think of this?' he would demand of Bernard. And when Bernard admitted he knew nothing of those symbols, Radolf would shake his head. "'Does it look correct? Does it feel correct?' And he'd smile his sly smile and clap Bernard on the back, telling him of his wonderful, wondrous work and how much Bernard was helping him. Radolf would often forget to eat, and his body grew worryingly lean. Bernard, of course, brought his own food to the eye-building and started forcing bits of it on Radolf, who would grab it out of his hand and eat while muttering about the stars in the sky. Eventually, Bernard decided that Radolf had to eat and so he cooked double portions and brought an extra wooden box with lunches that he gave to Radolf every morning. Radolf said nothing about this, but he dutifully ate the colorful meals on their midday break as they sat on the hill overlooking the far river and beach. The eye grows ready, Radolf said at one point, gazing off into the distance. It will see the beach, the river, all the lands beyond, there will be nothing it cannot see. He was young and impetuous, and his enthusiasm and energy made Bernard smile. But then Bernard would come home to Kedron, the same old dusty Kedron with his old clothes and old books and pipe tobacco. Spectacles perched on his forehead, shaking his head and grumbling about the dangers of the scrying eye. Bernard would kiss Kedron on the cheek and go to the kitchen to make the meals for him and Radolf for the next day. And so, the time passed, 
and though Kedron held him close at night, Bernard felt more and more distant. At one point in Radolf's work, Bernard became useful for more than simply documenting the passage of time. There were images and illustrations that needed to be drawn and then passed beneath the eye's gaze. The mages had attempted to do so, but they lacked the skill and precision that Bernard had. After all this time, he had become attuned to Radolf's way of thought, and so the illustrations were easy to sketch. A thought could pass between Radolf and him without words needing to be spoken. The days grew shorter and shorter again, and Bernard started spending longer and longer hours at the city center where the building of the eye was now complete. One day, a messenger brought a note from his mother. Your father is ill. Come quick. His father sat in his chair as usual, but he saw nothing and said nothing. Bernard put his hand under his father's nose to make sure that he still breathed. His father breathed, but did not respond to words, entreaties, touches, or even a gentle slap on the cheek. His mother stood next to him, arms crossed. He would have expected her to be angry or upset, but she seemed determined or resigned. "'He has been this way since early this week,' she said at last. "'This is the forgetting illness.' "'Have you consulted the healer?' Bernard asked, without hope. The forgetting illness struck few at his father's age, but it was well known that there was no cure and no treatment." Death would follow. Charms and amulets, his mother said bitterly. I would have been better off buying bread and salt. She pushed her hands into her pockets and drew out trinkets that must have cost her several gold pieces. She tossed them onto the dirt floor in front of his father. Glittering, they reminded Bernard of the testaments that were still hidden in the buried pouch. He's in there somewhere, she pleaded, but he sees nothing. She grasped Bernard's shoulders. Can you help him see? Bernard returned to the building of the eye later, and, viewing the blood-red swirls and symbols of the scrying eye, he thought about his father. Can you help him see? The eye could see everything, but surely it could not see wherever his father had gone. Radolf greeted him with a hearty hug but as they resumed their work, said less and less. "'You are upset,' he commented, when Bernard made an error in an illustration and had to scrape the paint from the canvas. "'My father,' Bernard said. They had spoken of his father before, and Radolf knew of the illness that was consuming him. "'He does not move. He does not speak.' "'There was a woman in our town, a great scholar. She had the forgetting illness.' There was no cure, Radolf said quietly. Bernard looked up at the eye. He sees. I know he sees something inside himself. And then? Could we use the eye to help him see? It was a foolish question, born of hope and despair, and Bernard expected Radolf to discard it. But Radolf stepped forward and looked up at the eye himself. The moonlight that shone in through the eye cast a dim, red light on Radolf. The eye is meant to see, Radolf said. What was, what is, what is to be. It is not meant to alter. A curious look came over his expression. 
Bernard held his breath. This is the moment where the world changes, he thought, and wondered why he would think such a thing. Radolf was furiously drawing on the slate. There were new symbols and new runes, and even the builders had to be recalled to change the shape of one end of the building of the eye, though Bernard did not understand why. Thirty days later, Radolf asked him to bring his father to the eye. His mother was beyond protest, and she helped his father into the cart that Bernard had hired, riding up front with Bernard. Bernard had not understood much of how the eye was to function. He had a vague sense that it would be similar to a telescope or spectacles, that one would peer through and see, as Radolf said, what was, what is, and what is to be. But Radolf placed Bernard's father in a chair in the center of the large main room of the building of the eye, facing the eye itself. The eye was at least a hundred feet up, and it was tilted so that the sunlight shone through into a circle on the floor, where his father sat. Bernard noticed then that the floor was a checkerboard of black and white. The black squares, not black at all, but filled with thousands of dark runes and symbols written on each one. The square where his father's chair sat was blood red, an arcane circle drawn around it. There were large levers that Radolf pulled, and small levers that Radolf flipped, and the light from the eye grew brighter and brighter. Bernard expected the blood-red color of sunset, but it was the violet of dusk that poured down from the eye and bathed his father in an unearthly glow. Beside him, his mother gave a strangled cry. They stood in silence and waited. The silence drew out, became unbearably loud. Every time Bernard thought to ask Radolf if it was working, he looked at his mother and stayed silent. And at last, at last he heard the raspy voice of his father, like a creaking door that had not been used in a long time. I see them, he said, awe in his voice. What do you see? Bernard asked, heart quickening. I see the fish. The fish have come back to the river. His father's eyes shone with the violet light as he peered into a place where Bernard could not go. His mother cried, and Bernard hugged his father, and Radolph applauded, and Bernard hugged Radolph, and Bernard and his mother brought his father home, and his father could speak and eat a little bit. But that night, when Bernard returned home to his quarters, Kedrin was not there. The Kedrin smell of his pipe tobacco hung in the air, but he had left no note and no explanation. He did not return while Bernard was awake, but was sleeping next to him in the morning light when Bernard rose. The next night, when Bernard returned home, Kedrin was not there again. It did not happen every night. There were nights when Kedrin's presence and love filled their quarters, and they ate their meal and talked and laughed. But there were other nights when Bernard knew before he opened the door that the house lay still. Kedrin would not say where he went, and he would come home after Bernard had gone to bed. 
Bernard did not want to ask. He wanted to know, and he wanted Kedrin to tell him. The secret hung between them like all the other secrets, the pouch of testaments, Radolf, and now Kedrin's absences from their home. It had been a while since Bernard had painted any new paintings for the book of painted memories he had created. This was no surprise. His book contained only the happy memories and none of the unhappy ones. Bernard went to look at the book one evening when Kedrin was gone and found only an empty spot on the shelf. It did not take him long to realize that every time Kedrin left, he took the book with him. And still Kedrin would not say where he went. The scrying eye was near completion now, and there were even more levers and round knobs that could be twisted or pushed or pulled. Bernard had observed Radolf enough to have a general sense of how to use the eye, although he was never alone with it. Until one day, when Radolf was briefly ill and sent a messenger with a note to tell Bernard to go home and sketch. Instead, Bernard locked the door to the building of the eye and, standing on the red checkerboard square, he drew in a breath and pulled this lever and pushed that one. The eye groaned and creaked and moved on its gimbals, and through its lens, Bernard saw where Kedrin had gone all those nights, where Kedrin was at that very moment. Bernard realized he had not needed the eye to tell him, because time's arrow was not a straight line, but rather a circle that was coming back to its starting point. On the cover of their book of memories, Bernard had drawn a painting, the very first one he'd done that he felt worthy of. He thought that Kedrin could not understand its significance, but Kedrin had never asked him about it. Bernard shut the eye and locked the building. Then, he went down to the beach, by the river. That first painting, the cover of their book of memories, was a violet study of the beach and the river. Deep purples that could not exist in nature, but only in flashes of his distant memory. Nobody could know from that painting that it was the beach. It was too abstract. But Kedrin had lived with him and loved him for years. To Kedrin, Bernard thought, this must have been as clear as a map. He found Kedrin sitting on the pier jutting out into the river, looking past the lapping waves into the distance. The book of painted memories lay next to him. Bernard felt such a pang of love then that he thought his heart might break. Kedrin spoke without turning around. I was going through these, Kedrin said, placing a calloused hand lightly on the cover of the book. You are a good painter. Good enough, Bernard admitted. But that is not why you come here, night after night. Kedrin looked up at Bernard. You have painted us from the day we met. Every memory we ever shared. How I loved looking at these memories. His hand flipped through the pages. But... You have stopped painting us, he said. There is a meaning to that. Bernard was about to protest, but he knew then the truth of what Kedrin had said. He had allowed Radolf to poison him with the thoughts and the promises and the dreams of what was to be. Poison him so that he could never see what was directly in front of him. Now it was too late. 
When Kedron said nothing more, Bernard bent down and picked up the album, and returned along the path, up the beach and up the hill toward the city, where the scrying eye looked out with a baleful stare. When Bernard arrived home, he examined the violet painting on the cover of the book, and he had a realization. He moved the statue of the ancient warrior's head and dug up the pouch, whose leather was dry and cracking. The Last Testament, the blank vellum scroll. Why had he not seen it all this time? It was the same size as the paintings he had made for his memory book. It was no longer blank. The Final Testament had asserted itself. Sketched in Bernard's own style, it depicted the scrying eye, the checkerboard floor with the one red square, and Radolph stepping through the eye. This would be the journey where Radolf would find him as a young man, would bring him the testaments, would seduce him with dreams of a happier future. He did not even need to draw this sketch. He simply placed it at the end of the memory book on the last blank page. An earlier Bernard, or a later one, had drawn it for him. What had Radolf said? You are a desperately unhappy man. You have made bad choices in love and in life, a failed relationship, among other things. Oh, yes, Bernard thought. Radolf had been correct. Radolf's visits, Radolf's testaments, had led Bernard to his bad choices in love and in life. His relationship with Kedron had failed because he had been blinded by the future, by Radolf. It was Bernard who had diverted the arrow that slew Farah, the leader of the conservative faction. Bernard's action had led to the rise of the progressives and the decision to build the eye. It was Bernard who asked Radolf to help his father, who had given Radolf the idea that the eye could not only see what was, but also change it. He had been responsible for the scrying eye as much as Radolf had. Bernard started towards the building of the eye, the book of memories tucked into the satchel he put over his shoulder. I have had no choice, he thought. I have been trapped in the circle of time's arrow since Radolf first came to me. Kedron and I could never have been happy. Radolf was already there, standing in front of the scrying eye, bathed in its blood-red light. The pouch of testaments in his hand was a new leather pouch with no wear. He looked just as he did that night all those years ago. Only Bernard saw him very clearly now. As their eyes met across the field of the eye, a final realization came to Bernard. You knew this would happen, all of these events, he frowned. You knew that I would never leave Kedron, but you could not stop yourself. Radolf shook his head violently. You draw images, I write words. If I speak the right words, the exact words I need, if I do everything just right, then I can convince you. His eyes were as blood red as the eyes lens. I can make you love me. And then he turned and stepped through the scrying eye into the past. I could not stop him, Bernard thought. I could not stop him because he is also trapped in the circle of time's arrow. Neither of us can escape. 
Hard tears came to his eyes at last, blurring his vision of the horrible, hateful eye. Tears for all of the time that he had lived with divided loyalties. To the past and the future. To Kadrin and Radolf. He had never fully chosen one or the other. His eyes cleared. There was one last choice he could make, Bernard thought. A circle may be unbroken, but there was always a beginning. And there is always an end. The builder's tools were still in the nave of the building. Bernard did not know how much time he had before Radolf returned. He drew up a great, heavy hammer and climbed the scaffolding that led to the scrying eye. The hammer felt good in his hands, a tool like his brushes, his pots and pans. He drew it back and swung it around in a wide arc and crashed it into the scrying eye. There was a sound as if a thousand angels had been slain and glass shattered around him. Now Radolf could never come back. A fierce, horrible wind sprung up, blowing through the hole in the building where the scrying eye had been, and Bernard, fearful, ran down the steps and out of the building. Still running, his feet retraced his steps from earlier that evening, across the hill and down towards the beach. The wind blew harder and wilder, and Bernard knew he had broken the circle, broken the strings of time itself. Then he saw Kedron in the distance, and he began to run faster. Bernard's foot caught on a root, and he fell, flew forward into the dirt. The Book of Memories burst from his satchel, and the wind caught it and flipped it open, scattering paintings to the wind, images and memories of his life with Kedron the choices he had made, the life they had lived. Many, many years earlier, Radolf looked into Bernard's eyes, reflecting the moon on the river. I have one last request, he said. Yes, Bernard said. Will you wait? Radolf asked. Will you wait for me? Nothing happened. No flash of violet. Radolf frowned, and he looked at Bernard very carefully. And when Bernard asked him what was wrong, Radolf said in a voice heavy with suspicion, I do not know. Kedron was waiting on the pier, standing and silhouetted against the light from the moon and the waves of the river. Bernard got to his feet and went to him. There was no what was, and there was no what is to be, only the wonderful, immutable Kedron with his dusty clothes and old spectacles and dusty satchel slung over his shoulder. Bernard jumped up onto the pier, and time came to a stop. Everything from this moment onward will be new, Bernard thought. Time's arrow is no more, the eye is no more, and the paintings of the past are no more. Only blank canvases. He would have to answer for destroying the eye, but it would never be rebuilt. It needed a genius like Radolf, and a dreamer like Bernard. But there was no need to dream of the future anymore. Bernard looked into his love's eyes and smiled. Come home, Kedron, he said. Come home, and let me make you something to eat.
Ah, look at that. The storm is settling and you are free to go. Of course, you're always welcome to sit by the fire and stay a while. There are many more nights and many more stories. Tonight's story was told by Joe Cruz. Find our credits, merch, and more stories at LavenderTavern.com. Interested in having your short story told at the Lavender Tavern? Submit a copy of your writing to us at www.faustianonsense.com forward slash Lavender Tavern Submissions. The Lavender Tavern is written by Jonathan Cohen and produced by Faustian Nonsense. If you want a huge selection of audio drama, some of the newest ones out there as they come out, then do find Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network, which is the new home of the Sonic Society, the world's longest-running, largest showcase of modern audio drama. You can find us on the Sunday Showcase feed, or if you want to hear all of the day's worth of audio, then you can find it on the main Mutual Audio Network feed, wherever you get your podcasts. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together. <laughs>